All right, y'all. Um, we have a again. We are highlighting our special guest. Let me repeat: he comes from the best high school in America, <laughs> Dub C, West Charlotte. Right. But that's not important right now. I would like to. I would like to introduce our special guest again, Brandon Richard. He is a clinical psychologist of the Richard Counseling and Wellness. Um, just want to kind of kick this off by saying, uh, you know, what what got you started in the in the in being a clinical psychologist, and what was your path in doing so? Well, as you know, Jamal, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Charlottean. Yep. Uh, I thought I was going to be a physician all of my life. Uh, started an internship in high school and realized that I did not want to do the work of a doctor. <laughs> but I was very interested in the stories that the patients were saying. Um, and I never knew a black psychologist. I mean, I knew, I knew the term, but I never knew anyone. I didn't have any role models or anything. Mm -hmm. So I figured I would uh, go into psychiatry and uh, started at Morehouse College and realized I didn't want to prescribe medication, but I was still interested in the stories. And I felt that particularly with our unique plight as black people and the intergenerational trauma that we experience uh, through slavery, through Jim Crow and, and, and everything like that, um, I wanted to be able to use my gifts and skills of me being able to think about the world a little bit differently to okay. tell my people. And that's really where it really started. All right, this is up. Let me. Um, I want. I want to ask you this as well. Um, in the black community, as far as our mental health is concerned, as as a, as a black society, mm -hmm. is it largely still taboo for us? Do, do, oh, yeah. do you feel like it's kind of like one of those things where, like, I mean, you know, Jesus will take care of it. Like, we we it, it, is it not discussed enough in, in in the black community, basically? No, absolutely. I mean, I think for if you look back to slavery that really is as far as you were going to go was to survive mm -hmm. right i mean if you think about even good times right even the song gets right scratching oh, and surviving it's not thriving right surviving. and therapy is about thriving it is not about surviving it's right. about making yourself better and so many people institutionally have been taught to simply survive so then the concept of therapy and being vulnerable so that you can grow beyond just survival is something that a lot of people don't really understand. And then also airing your dirty laundry and having that information used and it, it being weaponized against you is something that a lot of people are kind of concerned about. So you have those confluence of, of things and yeah, it, it creates the perpetuation of it being taboo. So let me ask you a question. So how do you fight the stigmatism that seeking help is, is a white person? Well, I think first and foremost, you just gotta have faces that look like you. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I've been pretty successful because a lot of times people assume that I can understand their experience because I am black and mm -hmm. that I can understand the plight of the black experience. Right. There is some validity to that. But what I also say is that I don't understand your experience specifically. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of inter uh, racism um, as far as like color and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, being light skin and mm -hmm. all this other stuff that kind of, you know, comes with that. So. Uh, it, it is something that you need more people of color, right? So like, I'm an anomaly. I am a man, I'm young, and I'm black. Mm -hmm. There are very few people like me in my field in Charlotte, um, unfortunately, right? Yeah. I can only see who I can see, right? I can only see 35, maybe 40 patients if I'm pushing through week. We have, what, 1.5 million people right, in the area, right, right. right? So we need more people like us. I think now then with that though, you also need the requisite gifts and skills because you can come to me because I'm black, but you're not going to pay me continuously because I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So it's still, you still have to build that rapport. You still have to be able to make people feel comfortable. And also you have to be able to deliver something. Yep. 
Um, well, I, I'm sorry. No, please. Well, um, you mentioned gifts and skills. So um, I know a lot of people that whenever they want to get into uh, psychiatry or any of the fields, they say, I'm good with talking to people. How does that work with actually getting into the field? There's a lot of people who come into the field who, who believe that they're good at giving advice, they're good at listening. Are those types typically successful or not? Advice giving is not something you really do in therapy. Okay. It is really guiding people to make the best decision for themselves. Because if you're giving advice, essentially what you're saying, you have disciples basically, is that I think about the world this way. If you think about the world this way, then you'll be fine. Right, and that's very a, an exercise in your own ego. It is really about being able to help people guide based on their particular experiences and not just being able to have advice, but understanding how that advice can be utilized. Because I can give you some really, really good advice right. that in a vacuum, if you followed it to the letter, you will be fine. But what is that gonna do with your parents right. and your yeah. siblings and your girl or your man or whomever it is, because they also are gonna have to change too. Some people think that therapy is this, that everybody around is just waiting for you to get better. And they're prepared for you to be better. And it's like, oh, I just can't wait. And then you get better and they'll say, oh, great. And now we just go on as a family. Right. If you've never been quote unquote okay, mm -hmm. right? Your family has adjusted to that for better or for worse. And now you're fundamentally changing the game and then everybody else, there's a chain reaction that comes with that. And that's why advice giving is, is, is a piece of it but it's very rare that I actually do that because you, you got to figure out how this thing actually plays out in real life. So there's a difference between, in my field, efficacy and, and effectiveness. And eff efficacy is what works in the lab, right? Mm -hmm. And then effectiveness is what works out in the real world, mm -hmm. right? And you really what you're really trying to do is reconcile the two. How do I get something in the lab first, but also how to translate it in a way that goes for your career? And your relationships and, and can, can you speak to the importance of doing the work I, I hear therapists say that a lot mm -hmm. people have to do the work uh, can you speak to the importance of doing so and, and what that really means so doing the work is really about the concept of growth right it's having a growth mindset which I think is one of these buzzwords today right. which is I can like some therapists can really get seduced by you just basically dropping jewels on people like oh man I never thought about it like that before and it becomes what I call sitcom therapy. Mm. <laughs> you do your work, you wrap it up, it sounds great, and then you say, oh, well, what did we talk about uh, last week? I have no idea. Right. Right? right? And now they're coming because they're coming to hear your voice, but not coming to do the work. So about doing the work is, I have to do something that's really difficult. I have to have some conversations. I have to have some insight about myself, about, you know what, maybe the way I think about women is not just about my dad, but it's about society, it's about rap music, it's about my grandfather, it's about me in a weird, perverse way, respecting my father who was an abuser and pitying my mom that I conflated with love. And I have to be able to reconcile those two things so then when I go forward and I don't want to treat my wife that way, so I don't physically abuse her, but I emotionally abuse her, and I say, well, at least I'm better than my dad, that's what I'm saying, but why am I, what, what's the premise of abuse yeah. Yeah. altogether? Right. So doing the work is really understanding, like, you see what you can see, right? So when, some, when something grows, like if you think about a tree, the, the roots have to grow in concert with the trunk, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, it can't hold its weight. Right, so people are always trying to, you know, flower the plant or make the plant look pretty without necessarily, you know, tilling the soil and making sure that the roots, the foundational things of somebody is set, right? right? 
and or or another thing that I'll say is some people try to build a house from the roof down, mm. and you can't do that. So yeah, doing the work is right. right. It's, it's right. but understanding what the foundations are. I think we understand that it exists, but not necessarily understanding the building material in order to say, okay, should this land or should this foundation be there? Right? Like when I work with a lot of couples, they're trying to get themselves back to something that actually they never were. Ooh. Right? Wow. So they're wow. building, they're trying to build something. Well, we want to be romantic. Were you ever? Or was this a or was this a business transaction? I'll trade your safety and security and I'll give you my beauty. Right? And then you're in a relationship and you're like, oh, but I want more. And it's like, but we never had that to begin, to begin with. with. Right? right? So now right. we're trying to create something that never existed and I cannot create something <laughs> independent of well, the other person. I, I just thought about something because you, you mentioned to us off camera that you use a lot of music analogies and sports analogies. Absolutely. I just thought of a sports analogy. We are obviously a sports podcast. Everybody complains about the Hornets every time. We we are all in abusive relationships with the Charlotte Hornets. All of us have been abused for years and years and years. But a sports analogy to that is the Hornets' foundation has never been straight, which is what speaks to the struggles of the franchise. We've never drafted well, which is the foundation. You have that foundation, you can grow, you can build something. But if your foundation is crooked, where does that leave you? Correct. My sports analogy for the day. There you go. And Kimmel Walker was the bones. Yeah. He's going out. He's going out. He gives us the foundation, and we're building a foundation. That's right? it. That's it. But I got I got a question. Sure. Um, you, you said that um, on average you're you're talking to about thirty to forty people per week, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't. I don't, I don't talk to that many people that have that many problems week in and week out. Mm-hmm. So when you're constantly talking to all these couples and all these people, we can, how do you compartmentalize that when you clock out for the day and where's your happy place? I mean, it's really about finding your routine. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do inherently is anxiety provoking. I had no idea what somebody's gonna bring me when they walk into my office. Absolutely no idea. Is, right? that, is that kind of the fun part for it lack is. of a better term? It is because you're figuring it out. Like when I do public speaking, it is me. Mm-hmm. I control the narrative, right? In therapy, it is not about me. Mm-hmm. I don't have bad days because it ain't my day, right? Right? It's their day, right. right? Right. I have to make every patient feel like I'm the only one they're seeing, while at the same time them also understanding that in an hour I got somebody else to see, right? So you're trying to fit that. So a lot of what I try to do is routines. I exercise quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I talk to people who are not in the field, right? That's really really important because. They can just see the world differently than I do, right? You know, you can always get kind of caught up in the way, you know, into your own press clippings of, oh, I did this, or I did that, or I did that. But it's really, I mean, I, I like a lot of comedy. I love music. Um, so I'm really just trying to find things uh, that are routine that kind of lets me, like, you don't totally compartmentalize it. You're just going to have some patients that you just, they just stick with, you, yeah. right? Yeah. For, for better or for worse. And you don't try to avoid it. You try to absorb it and let it kind of flow through you. But it's really a lot of, uh, actually, I feel, actually, the more money I make, the more I travel because I need to get away, yeah. physically being away. You know, I say that, you know, peace of mind costs as you make more money. <laughs> so yeah. um, being able to say, you know what, I have to really invest in myself because when I, I know when I'm at my best, I'm phenomenal. When I'm okay, I'm a good therapist. But when I'm at my best, and that's what my patients pay for. They pay for me to be at my best. So I have to continue to do that as much as I can. It, it just it just reminded me of something. And not to make this about me, but it just it, it literally just kind of popped. It gave me a memory that just popped up in my in my brain. 
when, when my mother passed away, it'll be four years next month. When my mother first passed away, I was traveling like crazy. I I went everywhere. Every every vacation I could afford, I went somewhere. And it was, you know, the grief, the stress, whatever you want to call it. It that was my happy place. That was me, I don't know what it was, it was me running away from the pain. Whatever it was, it was my way of dealing with whatever was going on with my mother's death. Not to equate my mother's death with your profession, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying that I kind of, but the experience of just needing to physically get away from the place right. yep. <laughs> that's causing you the anxiety, the stress, whatever that may be, is something that just kind of I related to when you said mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And actually, paradoxically, the more people I see, the easier it is because I don't need to dwell. Okay. Right? When I was seeing two or three people a day when I first started, oh, it was very easy. Ah, I should have said this. I could have done this. And you're just constantly. But I literally, I walk out. My, my patient leaves my office. I go to the bathroom. And when I'm coming back, it's next person. It's next one up. So having more patients has, quote unquote, made you a better psychiatrist, would you say? It's, it's made me a better it's made me a better person outside of it okay. because I don't have the opportunity to dwell on any one person, okay. right? So, I mean, obviously there are gonna be instances where if it's like a death in the family yeah. or you know, infidelity or something like that when it's like really like, whoa, you know, but for the most part, I gotta be ready, yeah. right? And I think that's what experience really gives you and I, and I couldn't have that year one. Now, have you ever or do you ever get a patient or a patient or patients who try and take y'all's professional relationship outside of the office. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, there's a concept called transference uh, okay, where yep. they may see you, it, it, it happens, I mean, it happens every now and again, and, and as, you get, as you get better, you get better at kind of sniffing that out from the beginning, um, saying, uh, are you here for me, or are you here for the work, right? Because ultimately, they don't really know what you're gonna do. Um, and most of my patients now are, are um, referrals from other patients, okay. right? Which is which is great, you know. So you know the patients are kind of kind of marketing for you. But yeah, there there opportunity. There are definitely times where, you know, and what's what's interesting is that you you would think about it sometimes with women, right? Mm -hmm. But it's actually with men too. Yeah, you know that you might be the friend um, in couples work. I might be like the good husband. Right? Oh man, if you only listen to me like he does, <laughs> we would be fine, right? And I also say, but I don't have to go home with you either, right? The stakes are different. So yeah, there are definitely opportunities where, where that occurs. And any good therapist, you know, is going to have those situations yeah. where because, you know, we are empathetic, we are listening. Our job is to be a listening, empathetic ear for the purposes of helping you. So I think that, that in some ways that can be conflated in some people's minds as something else. Um, so. I want, I'm gonna let you go right after this right over. I wanted to ask this question. Like, um, we this this crew, we discussed the the recent spike in crime in, in Charlotte, and you know specifically, we were all saying that with most of these cases, these are young people. Like, in most of the, there's like what almost 60 murders in Charlotte already now, mm -hmm. and most of those cases are like young people between like 16 and 21. I spoke to the fact of like. You know what I believe is the root cause is like, you know, nobody wakes up and say I just want to be a violent person who goes out and kills somebody. So, my my, I always said that the root cause for that was like emotional trauma and emotional distress. Do you feel like that's tied in with, you know, violence with young people? Is there some type? Of, is there is there a correlation between emotional distress, anger, stress, anxiety? 
that kind of exudes violence? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a multitude of things. So I think you have uh, people who are young, and young people are really emotionally driven people, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Logic tends to come over time because you need experience mm -hmm. to really have nuance. You get that perspective. Right? Yeah. Uh, if I buy a gun, I can quote unquote buy respect. Right, and I think a lot of particularly younger people who are disenfranchised just want respect. Yeah. Now, respect. Now, if respect is anything, I, I always say this in my work: you will get what you want, but at what cost? Right. Mm -hmm. So, if validation or respect is something you want that bad, you will do anything to get it. Right. If if I haven't eaten in three days, I don't mind robbing the grocery store. Right. 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 Because my desire to eat is so valuable to my survival. So imagine respect is that for you. That it is is just as important as eating, drinking, and sleeping, right. right? Then you will do what's necessary. So if I can walk around with a pseudo level of respect on my hip and somebody disrespects me, and I mean, I think that's a, something that you hear really more with black people than anything else. I'm tired of being disrespected and blah, blah, blah. And like, but you don't really understand what respect it means. Is. Then, and if I want to exert some power and control without having context to what I'm seeking, right? Power and control is a vehicle, not a destination. But people see it as a destination. So if you disrespect me, then you basically stop me from getting to my destination and I'm going to get rid of you in order to do that. So I think you have those confluence of things. Uh, I think you also have gentrification. Um, but also, we, we spoke to that too. You know, that talks, that talks about that, which is, you know, you, it's a competition model of racism where it's finite amount of resources. You have, now you have fewer space, you have yeah. less space and more people in a concentrated area. Which creates anxiety. Which creates anxiety yeah. and depression and anger and things like that. Um, so you have those confluence of things and I think you'll get these spikes. And I, I don't think, as long as gentrification occurs, whether it's on Freedom Drive or you know Ashley Road or something like that, any gateway street where you can see a town clear, I, I, I think this is gonna be a continuing trend. And the problem is that they criminalize uh, the population, and again, they're treating the symptom and not, and not the root causes of why this is the case. And essentially what, what's happening is that any successful institution just reappropriates their values for what that generation particularly values. So for example, gentrification is basically just younger white people saying this, I, I want to be rich, but I also value the environment. Mm -hmm. So if I can close the gap between my work and my home, that I felt that I did the noble thing, which right. is I did something good for the environment. But, well, the process, but, but at the cost of black people, right? The process. So my million dollar home may not be as big as my parents, but it's still the million dollar home and I get to ride a train uptown, but at the expense of black people, right? So y'all get out the paint, appreciate you. <laughs> and you know, we're not gonna push you to the suburbs because you can't afford to go. So now you're gonna have an apartment that might can house three people, now you got seven people in it. Yeah. And they're all fighting for respect. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they don't understand. So, what would you describe as barriers to African Americans receiving help in our community? Um, so, a few things. Number one, understanding that you need it. Right? Just, at, just on a very basic level. Um, understanding why you need it and where, where your help can actually add value to your life. Mm -hmm. So, I'll use a relationship as an analogy. If I want a relationship to purely curb my loneliness. Well, once I'm in it, I'm not lonely anymore. Then what? Mm. 
Now, all the requisite things of a relationship are still there and I'm still going to have to behave. And the only reason I'm continuing to do more and more is to have the same result that I got rid of a long time ago. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. I need a relationship to help me grow. It's a platform to help me be better as an individual and as a collective. As opposed to just simply curbing something that I feel that I have a deficit in. Gotcha. And black people are really deficit driven, right? Mm -hmm. We're we we are we have these deficits and I want the deficit to be closed. And I'm like, okay, so that what? What do you want to do with that? Mm -hmm. Right? If I give you a house, if I give you up, I think Kamala Harris has this hundred billion dollar plan for housing. I'm like, that's utterly ridiculous because <laughs> the reason that houses are valuable is because they're scarce. Yes. Yeah. Right? right? So now you have all black people have money now, it's not as valuable, and then the wealth is gone. Right, it's it's again right. It's yeah. it's really understanding exactly what you need. So what I try to do as a therapist and as a speaker is to say you have to first understand exactly what you're wanting to do. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, if you will not grow, you will feel pain. If you grow, you will feel pain. But the pain can be more productive or more of a static pain. And if we are whether it's drugs or something like that, drugs are there to curb pain. Right, heroin is the hero's drug. It's a painkiller. It's a pain number, yeah. right? So for so long, so many people were taking drugs to curb pain without understanding that the pain is necessary for growth. Pain is a I, teacher. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, sure. but was, uh, some, something else that just popped up in my brain. I, there was an episode of uh, The Breakfast Club where um, uh, Taraji P. Henson was on The Breakfast Club, and she's been heavily campaigning about this mental wellness, mental health with, with, with black folks. And a, a point she made was, and, and this is speaking to what you just said, when we, when, if we, if we go injure our leg, injure our foot, our ankle, what do we do? We go to the doctor. Right. We injure anything else in our body, we go to the doctor. Our head is a part of our body. <laughs> but we are not so quick to go to the doctor when it's something going on with our head. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm figuratively speaking, but you get what I'm saying. And to speak to your point about having to go through pain to get to your ultimate goal, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not the therapist, obviously, but you have to kind of go to that dark space sometime. You have to go to that pain. You have to confront that pain that hurts. It's going to hurt like hell sometimes. If you don't do that, you ultimately don't make yourself well. Is that accurate? Is that Does that fall in line with no, what absolutely. you say? No, absolutely. So mental health, like anything, being healthy is not the absence of getting sick. Mm. It's just not, right? You have to, any healthy person gets sick from time to time and you build immunity through getting sick, right? Right. So, but some people are so afraid of ever getting sick or ever feeling pain that they do everything to avoid it, but at the cost of growth. So you have, so mental health and mental wellness or mental illness, they're all they're all aspects of the same thing. And it's like, yes, you do get sick. There should be times where you should be quote unquote sick, right? Your mother dies. Right. You know, wow, wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. That's tough. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to struggle. I should, what if you didn't? Right. Right? What, right. What, what would that say to your relationship with her? <laughs> right. If you were like, I'm good. Right. Right. right? right. So, but people feel that if I don't, if, if I go through this somehow, then something's wrong with me. And I'm like, no, something's wrong with you because you don't go through it, yeah. right? And, 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 you know, it's the third law of thermodynamics, right? That energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's just transferred, right? So you're gonna transfer it into something, you're gonna transfer it into food, you're gonna transfer it into drugs, you're gonna transfer it into sex, you're gonna transfer it into any level of validation that you seek, as opposed to just addressing it. When you have the flu, most doctors say, go have the flu. 
you'll get over it. Oh, man, I mean, but you know, I'm hot and cold and I have a headache and I'm stuck. It's like, yeah, you have the flu. <laughs> You're supposed to go through that. Now go through it and in a few days you'll feel better. And man, when you feel better, does it feel great? Awesome. Right? So, I'm sorry. No, please. No, um, just a kind of caveat I feel comment about when, when there's an unexpected tragedy, how you respond to it. Um, going back to the Nipsey Hustle there, mm -hmm. um, did you, I don't know if you watched the BET Award Show, uh, but his, his mom gave a speech on the show. I, I went back and watched it in hindsight, but it got a lot of conversation because there were a lot of people that were saying that, that she was mourning. Some other people were saying that something, something was wrong with her because they did not feel that or she understand. was- Or understand. Understand is probably the better word, yeah. but they did not feel that she was mourning the way that they felt like that she should have. With you being a therapist, and I don't know if you saw any of this. No, I haven't. Okay, well, essentially, she she showed little to no remorse or any emotion whatsoever. And just like you say, energy isn't isn't created and destroyed; it just moves on to another form. That's essentially what she said about about Nipsey Hustle. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, if somebody walks into your office who just lost somebody who supposedly close to them. If they if they come in pretty stoic, how do you respond to that as a therapist? Do you, do you kind of do you reinforce them and just kind of guide them and how to deal with it, or do you do you try and tell them that maybe they should be a little bit more emotional? Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? Well, it depends if them being stoic is at the expense of something else, right? So each person, so relationships with people are way more nuanced than the public will ever understand, right? That. When Nipsey also died, he became an entity. You know, like, you know, because you can't grow, you can't do anything more, right? So he was more of a representation of a whole group of people who felt connected to him in some way. We have no idea what his mother, his mother's relationship was to Nipsey, right? She just could be in shock, right? Because it's not like she gets to grieve in private. I mean, I have some personal experience with this, with my grandmother, you know, dying in a public fashion. You don't get to grieve in you know in private only right you have to grieve in public and you just can't look like you're broken down every single moment because you're like i gotta live man like i, I gotta you know i gotta be all the things that people need me to be and i gotta agree right and who knows she who knows who and you know, to whom she's being strong for right right she's like hey i'm at the bet awards i'm supposed to cry no i'm they're asking me to do something yeah let me do this so when, when something is so personal, to tell someone how to grieve is saying that you should, again, it would be like me giving advice. It's, it's telling you what to be versus saying, well, let's understand why you are the way you are, okay. right? Because you understand that first so that if, if I don't have a baseline understanding of your relationship with someone, I cannot help them. What I can do is give them advice based on how I would do it, but it's never about them. It's about me. Right. So speaking on your grandmother and Charleston, isn't it? Um, I'm a Charleston native. I, I felt some type of things, and I've been in that church. My grandmother. Let me let me cut off real quick. I just feel like, and I'll be real quick. I just feel like it's necessary to kind of introduce to the audience. You know, your, your grandmother was, of course, one of the nine people who were a victim in the Charleston nine shooting. So I just just to give context to what the conversation to where the conversation is going. But Rodney, go go ahead. I just want to. Uh, I'm a Charleston native myself. I've been in that church. My my great grandmother was a member. Uh, she died in 2008. Uh, so how did you, as a therapist, licensed therapist, grieve that? Like, did you seek help yourself? Uh, did you lean on your family? How, how did you handle that? 
So to answer your question, yes to all of those things. So grief in any context is multi-layered, right? I'm grieving the death of my grandmother. I'm dealing with the death of my mother's mother. I am, you know, in all the collateral things that come, the public nature of it, why it happened under the circumstances. And, you know, most people who die don't really understand exactly the circumstances of why somebody killed another person. I actually do, right? Um, So there's there's multi-layers to it. one thing that I knew, I had a great support system mm-hmm. from the very beginning, and I remember telling them, I'm going to really have to lean on you. Mm-hmm. So I made that known very early, right? I didn't try to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. This was beyond, a trauma is something that occurs that is beyond one's ability to cope. Yeah. And that was way beyond my ability to cope. So I wasn't going to try. So I had a great support system at work. I had a great support system of friends who would check on me. And not just ask me, am I okay? But ask me, how am I doing? Mm-hmm. Right? Because when you ask me, am I okay? Now I either have to confirm or deny yeah. what you yeah. want me to say versus saying, well, how are you feeling? And I would, you know, if I had a bad day, I had a bad day. You know, say I'm having a really, really bad day. Um, so I really try to channel the energy as much as I could into doing things with people more so than anything. The thing I wanted to do, which was to lock myself in a room, was the thing I knew I couldn't do or shouldn't do for my own personal growth. So I actually had to like really, really take the risk of doing things that I really did not want to do. But, and at the same time, if I just absolutely couldn't deal with people, giving myself freedom and license to say, I don't have it today, I need you to leave me alone. Yeah. So now, uh, were you in practice when, when that happened? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, did you continue to go to work um, during this? So how how were you able to, I guess, compartmentalize uh, both worlds, you know, grieving while trying to help others through their struggles? So my work for me is is my... Outlet. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. it's, it's just different, right? To be in a... Because again, like I said earlier, it's not about me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for that time, I could be in other people's worlds, right? It was like I had this like background running at always that was sapping my energy that I really felt after work right at the time my girlfriend like she probably got more of it than my patients ever did because I could focus and I could say you know what I can do the noble thing I could do the good thing I can help people and I would come home and I fall apart uh, I was ex- I was so mentally exhausted mm-hmm. but in the moment I could I could handle it but gotcha. and gotcha. looking back at it I sh- probably should have taken more time for myself I probably should have traveled more. I probably should have done some of the things to kind of um, conceptual, you know, compartmentalize uh, what was going on. Um, but my work was my happy place. My work was a place where I could escape being me. I was not Brandon Richard, the grandson of Ethel Lance, and the cousin of Susie Jackson, and Tawanza Sanders. It was. I was a therapist, and people were coming to hear what I had to say and for me to help them. And that gave me some solace because I was thinking maybe if somebody did that to Dylan Roof, maybe he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Right, no, so that was something that I could always think about that maybe I am preventing someone and, from being able to take that. And, and, and that that sounds like a really big step to take to say, "Hey, man, you know, there's always cause and effect. Nobody wakes up and just says, I'm going to be a cold, heartless killer. Mm-hmm. Something had to happen <laughs> right. to this person to cause to cause whatever just happened. Do you agree with that? Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean, when I was at the trial, I could, you know, I. Remember saying to people like, "I can absolutely see how somebody could get there." Yeah, I and, and I, I mean to cut you off, but the, what you know, I've always had that way of thinking because I have this weird. This is just me. I have this weird fascination with like criminology because I always want to know what happened to this person to get them to be the way they are. True. If you look at 
if you go research any serial killer, I guarantee you 90% of the time, it's always abusive relationship. It's always childhood trauma. There's always cause and effect. And that's kind of what brought me to, when, when you were stating what you, what you were stating, that just kind of led me to, to, to state that. I just kind of want to know was that off base or not. So, no, 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 yeah. sure. So so going back to, to uh, the Civil War, right? So we're going to go back from there and bring it back. We as black people, our stories get better, right? Each generation, our story gets better. For him, his story gets worse in his mind, right? Their grandfather, great grandfather, talking about how great they had it then. You know, how black people had their place and they would never dare touch a white woman, you know, and all of these other things. And he's like, yo, why? So you have these confluence of things, you have some inherent built-in mental illness, and you have this kind of Molotov cocktail of these all these things I, are it, I was about to say it's like a bomb way to yeah. go off. And yeah. so to say, you know, I don't have the same ability. This white girl I like like a black dude. And why would she go backwards? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think people that a lot of times when it talks about interracial relationships, people can say that. And that's why their families get so pissed. Why would you inherently date somebody that's worse than you? Like a lesser human. Right. Yeah. So, but it, but I can also get my mind to say, oh, well, she's not willingly. She's being forced. Mm. And I'm going to be deliberate. The, right. Exactly. So, wow. I mean, it's. That's powerful. If you, if you want to understand where someone is going through, it's like, just try. It might be some fiction, right? It might be, you have to be creative, but what he did wasn't inherently logical. So what he did was create something that wasn't based on logical, it was based on his conceptualization of what he was seeing and what he was feeling in the stories that he had been told generationally. Now, oh, you got something? No, going? no, go ahead. Bro. Okay, um, I, wanna, I wanna pivot to uh, a, a, in another direction. Sure. Um, you, you kind of brought up the uh, African-American struggle from the Civil War up until now. I listened to one of your podcasts uh, before coming in today, and you spoke about how a lot of African Americans choose not to go to therapy because of the stigma of pricing. Mm -hmm. So what I want you to do for those that are listening and watching, kind of explain what the stigma is, uh, what the truths are, and some of the many different ways they can go about getting uh, counseling in regards to insurance or maybe through their work, anything like that. Sure. So I'll speak about me personally because I think it'll, it'll, it'll help. So I take uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, and CBHA, which is a um, behavioral wing of like uh, met cost for us. Okay. And I'm out on network with certain people, which means that you pay me a full price, I hand you a receipt, and you might be able to get reimbursed, more likely reimbursed through your insurance company. Um, so it is, it is not like medicine, right? In my field, the diagnosis is the beginning, not the end, right? In medicine, it's the end. Okay, we, you have type 2 diabetes, we know exactly what to do, you follow this protocol and you'll be fine. In my field, it's like, okay, but depression looks different in, in, in each individual, right? And there's so many correlates to it. Um, now, I have some people who pay a deductible, right, which is $100 or $120, and some people pay out of pocket, or some people pay $10 for their copay. And it's really about what you, you pay for what you value. Right, so this goes institutionally. If you don't inherently value the institution of therapy, you cannot value an individual therapist, right? It's just hard to do yeah, so. Yeah, right, right. So you really have to see the value in it. And that's where, and this is something that I understand as a black therapist is that I got to hit hard fast. Yeah. I got to come and hit you with something like, I'm willing to spend that money on this, right? Because if you don't, then 
people are like, I paid you how much for what? And I feel, matter of fact, I feel worse. Oh <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. And you want me to do this every week or twice a week or depending on. So as a therapist, at the, at the beginning, you're, you're part salesperson, mm-hmm. right? You're, there's not a lot of therapy per se because a session does not make therapy. Like I'll have sometimes, actually I have a, a wife that called me and said, I wanted to come in for a session. And I said, for what? Like, well, I want to come in because I want to talk about my husband. I was like, no, because what you're going to tell me might help me move the needle for him, but it won't move the needle for the two of you, right? Because there's so much I need to know about you that you can't give me in a session. So a session doesn't make therapy. So it's really about the commitment to consider. It's like a gym membership, anything like that. If you don't value going to the gym, you're going to feel like it's a waste of money, right? But that's, that's something that I can't give you. I can help illuminate in you, but I can't give it to you. Mm-hmm. So, and it is indefinite. Some people, I have a patient I've seen for six years. Some people I see for two months, I'm like, you got it. Mm-hmm. So it just really depends. So it's how much of the work are you doing on your own to begin with? And, and going back to the work, the work you're doing in between the times we meet is really going to really dictate how well you do and how much you're going to have to invest. But it is not my responsibility to do the work for you because that helps me and not you. Quick question. So what are some of the criticisms you face as far as your profession? Oh, uh, snake oil salesman. Um, <laughs> wow. That, you know, we're just talking about feelings. Right, right. right. And feelings are a big part of it. But I think people don't really understand what feelings are yeah. and what they're not and the limitations of feelings. And we all at the end of the day want to feel something mm-hmm. right a great comedian makes you feel a good comedian makes you think a great comedian or a phenomenal comedian makes you do both yeah. right at the end of the day we want to feel something now if we want to feel something without understanding how those feelings actually drive our lives then we'll only seek the feeling and the feeling won't have context, and then I'll always chase the feeling without understanding why this feeling is necessary, right? So like, for example, happiness, for example. Some people are like, I just wanna be happy. I'm like, and what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> do you wanna, is that happiness gonna help you have more discernment in relationships? Mm-hmm. Is it gonna motivate you to find a better job? Is it, gonna, is it going to actually make you call that cousin or aunt, you know, that you haven't spoken to in a while that you want to build a better relationship with? Because ultimately feeling happy doesn't really mean anything. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. Like if, if my girl says, you do these things, you make me happy. And I do all those things that she ain't happy, did I fail? No, because that was about her anyway. So it's really about understanding what feelings are. And as a therapist, my job is to help them think beyond. I'm My job is to teach people how to think, not what to think, okay? So, but if you want to be told what to think, which a lot of people go going back to the myths um, that you had, that you that you're speaking of, that's what they're doing. Well, you didn't tell me what to think. Just tell me what to do. And like, no, I'm not going to tell you what to do because if you fail, you're going to blame me, mm. and you're just reappropriating. Now, what you're doing is you're using my credentials as a way of justifying why you already feel the way you feel. Couples do this all the time. They're on the brink of divorce. They come to me and say, well, hell, if he couldn't fix this, then what, what can? You know, who can? And they're like, no, no. And so, you, so, and that's kind of the art of it and really understanding that, um, that it takes a long time that we enter for money, right? Like, you know, I, I charge out of pocket quite a bit of money. I charge more than the average person. Why? Because I think I'm better than the average person. But with that, you have to understand what comes with that. 
but I also have to deliver, right? It's about, it also keeps me honest because if I don't do well, you're not gonna pay me. Yep. So it keeps me motivated, it keeps me motivated to learn and to grow and to see metaphor and different things and be able to use analogies that best fit them um, versus just telling me, well, how do you feel about that? Right. You know, tell me how you feel. That's and I got way one more question. Uh, are there any particular studies on just basically uh, just the black male psychology and just how he internalizes things or anything like that that you know of? Actually, no, there's really not a lot to that. There's so few of us. I don't think a lot of us are yeah, doing a lot of research about that. Uh, actually, that'd be something that would be great for, I guess, for me to do. Yeah. You know, when there's a gap in the vacuum, you, you close the gap. Well, let me say this. Uh, we, we're going to wrap this up, but before we do, this this needs to be said, man. Um, we, we've been at it. Well, how long have we been at it now, man? Hour, no, I'm talking about total, like two and a half hours. About two and a half months. Yeah, we've been at about two and a half months, man. Let me say this is under construction. Did a, did a special thing today. I think this is the most fulfilling episode or segment that this crew has ever done, man. I, I really want to thank you for your time today, man. This is really dope. Um, going forward, man, I hope we can have more like, man. So thank you for coming on and joining us today, man. Yeah. And what's the name of your podcast as well? Yeah, yeah shout out to podcast, cl- bro. Close this out with, with, with where you're located, your podcast. Promote yourself, do all that good stuff. Sure. Um, Brandon Risher, clinical psychologist and owner of Risher Wellness and Counseling Center. Um, you can find me on Twitter at PLLC Risher or Instagram at Brandon.Risher. Um, look me up on Facebook. Uh, I'll be actually uh, coming out with a uh, with a show with uh, with the project on YouTube, so y'all can look out for that. And I'll continue to do speaking engagements on microaggressions and racism, and just try to do my part to uh, to help not just my people, but um, how to integrate my people into the, the great society at large. So, and, and just the last thing I'll say is uh, thank you all for this for this vehicle to be able to do this. Uh, this is great. I think the questions were amazing and, and really relevant, and I, and I hope that we can uh, evoke some change in the city. Yeah, man. Hopefully, this ain't the uh, this ain't the first and only time, man. Oh but, no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm always back to talk as a Lakers fan. Appreciate you coming on, bro. We appreciate it, man. Thank you, man. And, uh, Peace out, y'all. Thank you guys for watching. Construction.